It is so good to be here for Church Online with you today. My name is Justin, I'm the Family Ministries Pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. I'm so glad to be able to close out our current series with part four of Face to Face with Jesus. In this series, we've been looking at instances recorded in the Gospel of John of people coming face to face with Jesus himself and what the result of that encounter was. Today, we're looking at a fairly well-known face-to-face encounter with Jesus. We are going to look at a story that brought one of Jesus' disciples to a state of infamy, gave him a nickname, and made his infamous nickname a common phrase to describe someone who is skeptical. The disciple's name is Thomas, but he might be better known as Doubting Thomas. Today, a Doubting Thomas is someone who is considered overly skeptical, or it's sometimes used facetiously to refer to someone who is being skeptical at all. This one instance that brought Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, down in infamy as Doubting Thomas is found in John 20, 24-29. It's important to know a little bit of what's going on, and we're at the very end of John's Gospel with this story. There's a lot that has happened that has led up to this point. If you haven't, I, full, I, I definitely recommend reading John's Gospel. It's exciting, it explains things a little bit more than other Gospels, and it's often what people recommend as a good book to start out with when you're reading the Bible for the first time. But here's the Sparknotes version of what's gone on that is relevant to this exact moment that we're looking at today. We're at the point in Jesus' life and ministry that he has already lived his perfect life. He has performed countless miracles and wonders, and he was killed on the cross by the Romans as an innocent man. He stayed dead for three days, but on the third day, he rose back to life. After Jesus rose from the dead, he began to appear and reveal himself to his disciples, and then to others who had followed him. Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene at the site of the tomb where he was buried. Then Jesus visited his disciples who were staying at a house, trying to figure out what they were going to do after their Lord had been executed. But not all of them were there at that time. That is where we are picking up in verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is the moment where Thomas gets his new name, Doubting Thomas. This one moment of questioning. I mean, when we read the Gospel, this isn't the first time Thomas asks questions. We have one other record in John of a question in John 14 verse 5, when Jesus cryptically described how he will leave them to prepare heaven for those who follow him and that they will meet him with meet with him one day. And Thomas asks how they will know where that is and how to get there. Now I'm sure Thomas asked more questions than what was recorded, but when we look at the situations Thomas is recorded as questioning, We can see that Thomas isn't looking to be distracted or find reasons not to believe. He just wants to be sure of things. He just wants to make sure that he's got all the details in both situations because the implications of what he's questioning are not only life-changing, but they are world-changing. This passage continues in verse 26 to say, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. This passage, this idea of doubt, has a huge tension in my life, and I'm sure it does in the lives of many of you watching right now. Doubt is something that everyone will have, and it's something that we all have to come to terms with. But at the same time, it's something that seems to bring about a special kind of shame. One of the least likely things we will open up about to our friends, mentors, or even in prayer to God is doubt. It is a super normal thing, but at the same time we try so hard to push it under the rug. Doubt is concealed many times in a way that would make it seem to be a sin. But doubt isn't a sin. Doubt is just doubt. Doubt isn't even non-belief. It doesn't mean you're looking for reasons not to believe. And when it comes to faith specifically, a person of faith beginning to experience doubt most often isn't due to wanting to not believe, but is usually due to a longing for a deeper understanding of the matter at hand. Thomas gets a bad rap for this one time of questioning, this one time of wanting to see the proof, the proof that the rest of the disciples got to see just over a week earlier. It would seem too that history judges Thomas far worse than Jesus ever did. Nowhere in John's Gospel is there any mention of Jesus being upset with or even disappointed in Thomas. Thomas isn't even recorded saying to Jesus that he needed to see and feel the wounds himself. He said that to the other disciples earlier when Jesus wasn't there. Despite this, Thomas still gets the name Doubting Thomas for all of history. And I think this is telling of how we approach doubt within our Christian circles today. As mentioned before, doubt is something that we try particularly hard to, to hide. And I sometimes wonder why. Now, Thomas wasn't the only disciple to fail in this time. I mean, there was the obvious other, Judas Iscariot the traitor, who betrayed Jesus. But there is another who, if we're being honest, made a larger and more consistent error than Thomas. In that, his error was decisively actually an error. This other disciple is Peter. Peter, despite denying Jesus three times leading up to his death on the cross, is never known as Peter the denier. No one calls anyone a denying Peter, and if we are going to compare denial and doubt, denying Jesus seems far worse than a moment of doubt. And in Peter's situation, especially three denials. I'm not here to hate on Peter at all. He was redeemed, he did a great work for the kingdom, and, you know, he definitely outshine that moment. But here's the thing. Thomas did great work for the kingdom too. Thomas traveled to bring the gospel message to East Asia and India, and just as Peter was not limited to his past as the denier, but as the rock, I would like to draw attention to Thomas's true identity, which in the end is Thomas the believer. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, this is what happened here. Thomas, the one who doubted and was skeptical, did end up believing. When Thomas came face to face with Jesus, he believed. And I believe that you too, when you come face to face with Jesus, you will also believe. Thomas's face to face encounter was literal. He was right there. He could reach out and touch him, and he did. But there are countless ways we come face to face with the power of the risen Christ today. And when that happens, there is no option but to believe. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't going to persuade someone who doesn't want to be persuaded. He isn't going to force himself on someone who wants nothing to do with him. 
Thomas wasn't doubting because he wanted to disbelieve, but because he wanted to be sure. Thomas was one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the twelve. So, news of his Lord being risen may have been difficult for him to believe, but it was something that he certainly would have wanted to be true. I mentioned earlier that Thomas wasn't recorded as asking Jesus himself to feel his wounds, but that he says that earlier when he's with his disciples and Jesus isn't there. However, when Jesus sees Thomas, the first thing he offers is for Thomas to see and feel the wounds. Perhaps Jesus knew what Thomas said because he's God and he knows things, or maybe Jesus just knew Thomas well enough to know that that is just who he is and he's going to want to test and be sure. Just as Jesus knew Thomas deeply and what he would need to see to believe, he knows each one of you deeply as well. And he knows what your holdups are. He knows what your insecurities are. And he knows what you will need revealed for you to believe. You just need to be willing to believe. To show what being willing to believe looks like, I will illustrate what being unwilling to believe looks like. I'm sure many of us know someone who refuses to believe, or at least know of someone who outright refuses. There are people who do not want to believe in God, who no matter what the proof they are given, still would not believe in him. I'll always remember an interview I saw with an actor slash comedian slash writer named Stephen Fry, who is a staunch atheist, who was asked, you know, if he were to come face to face with God, to be given like hard proof of God's existence right, right there in front of him. How might, he, how might he change his perspective? And his answer, in short, and with less colorful language than he used, was that he wouldn't submit to God no matter the proof, even if he was right in front of him, because he was unable to reconcile suffering in the world with there being an all-powerful God who is all-knowing and also good. Now, if you do end up searching out and finding that clip, be warned, there's some strong language in that interview. But this issue is known as theodicy, the reconciliation of a good God with there being suffering in the world. And it's a valid thing to have questions about. And as a side, this isn't the topic of today's message, but if you have questions about theodicy, or if there are other topics or questions you like to hear about or have addressed, feel free to leave a comment and we'll see if we can cover that in a, in a message, a daily devotional, or perhaps in some other way. But the point of message, uh, mentioning this uh, today is to say that someone who is approaching faith in a way like Stephen Fry expresses in that interview, he doesn't want to believe and just like God will reveal himself to you in some way if you're looking to believe, he will also oblige your request if, it is, if, you're, if you don't want to believe. And there is even a biblical example of this. An often misunderstood or even just glanced over aspect of a well-known Bible story is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the story of Moses and the exodus of Egypt. In Exodus 7 to 12, the famous showdown between Charlton Heston, I mean Moses and Pharaoh, takes place where Moses is asking Pharaoh to let his people go from slavery in Egypt. And Pharaoh's opposition is met with 10 plagues that rain down on the land of Egypt, where after every single plague, Pharaoh is given the opportunity to let the Hebrew people go, to keep the next plague from happening. But every single time, Pharaoh says no. Until after the tenth and final plague takes light, the life of his son, Pharaoh is unwilling to let God's people go. The misunderstand or glanced over detail from the story is a reoccurring line 
regarding Pharaoh's heart being hardened. When God tells Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh regarding the impending plagues, he tells Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. This for many people feels strange. I mean, why would God do something that leads to such destruction while compromising Pharaoh's free will in the moment? And the answer to that is that God is only giving Pharaoh what he wants and in effect is honoring Pharaoh's free will entirely and completely. It's in Exodus 7 verse 3 that God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened throughout the story. But it isn't until the sixth plague in Exodus 9 verse 7 that God actually does the hardening. Up until this point, Pharaoh has witnessed one pretty crazy miracle of a staff being turned into a snake and then back again along with five other plagues. All of this happened and Pharaoh hardened his own heart all by himself. He didn't want to let God's people go. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was just doing what Pharaoh wanted from the beginning. This is what I mean when I say that God isn't going to force himself into somebody's life who specifically doesn't want him. Now, if we contrast Pharaoh with the Apostle Paul, Pharaoh was in active, it was in active opposition to the will of God. Paul, on the other hand, was an overzealous religious person who was, yes, persecuting the church, but he was doing it ultimately because he genuinely believed that to be the right way to serve God until he was shown otherwise. Paul began with us in scripture as Saul, a Pharisee and persecutor of the church, and we can find his story in Acts 8, uh, Acts chapters 8 and 9. But the main difference between Saul and Pharaoh are while they're both in opposition to the people of God in their respective times, Saul wasn't closed off to God. He wasn't actively stubborn in his own self-interested ways, so rather than hardening his heart like Pharaoh wanted to have happened, he received Jesus when he intervened and showed Saul the truth. And what did Saul do in that moment? He believed and his name was changed to Paul. When Saul came face to face with Jesus, he too believed. Just as Jesus knew what Thomas needed in that moment 2,000 years ago, Jesus knows what you need today. You just need to approach him willing to be persuaded. Now, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 in Matthew 4 verse 7 and says that we're not supposed to test God. But asking God to reveal himself to you so that you can believe is not what he's referring to. You know, to test God would be more akin to refusing to look both ways when crossing the street because you believe he'll protect you from cars. And I don't get the feeling that we have that issue amongst us today. Now, I want to address a few different kinds of people who might be watching this video today. The first is those who are currently having trouble with doubt. I know how you feel. I've been there. It's tough, and it seems isolating. It seems like you can't talk to people about it, and it feels like you should be ashamed of what you're feeling. But I want to speak into that today. It is super important to recognize that doubt is not the absence of belief. Disbelief is actually the absence of belief. And for true doubt to take place, you had to believe to some extent in the first place. I'm a strong believer that as we do what Philippians 2 verse 12 says, as we work out our salvation, that is continuing on the journey of discovery of what the implications of Jesus' gift to us in both our lives and our universe are. 
This will lead us to ask some hard questions, and these hard questions might lead us to periods of uncertainty, and these periods of uncertainty might cause us to have doubts. But when we overcome these doubts, when we have continued on in truth, as these difficulties are reconciled, you will be rewarded with a deeper and more profound faith than you had before. The pain is well worth the reward and the risk. And it's only a risk if you give up midway in the journey. Because if Jesus is true, then earnestly searching for the truth will only lead you closer to him. The second people that I want to address are those who are not having trouble with doubt and maybe you've never really had a serious trouble with doubt in your life. You know, maybe you haven't experienced doubt in so long that, you know, you, you, you might find it hard to truly remember what it was like when it was happening. And chances are, you also likely haven't broadcasted that you have struggled with doubt in your past and I totally understand that. But it is no wonder why, when people are experiencing doubt, they feel alone and isolated. Because it feels like those around us have never been through anything like we're going through right now. And it can feel shameful. What I want to say to you is to make yourself open and accessible to support those in your life who may be experiencing doubt right now. Be willing to sit with them without making them feel judged or having a hard time with, for having a hard time with a concept. And if you're able to help with an explanation of something that a person is going through, um, don't expect your answer to fix it completely in that moment. You know, it might take a little while for it to click with them, or they might need to hear other voices. They might need to get to their next step on their own with, with, with their own thinking and their own process. But we all need support no matter where we are at in our faith journey. So be supportive. Don't judge. Pray with them, but don't expect to be able to solve the problem in the moment. And don't be disappointed in them or yourself if that's the case. Just be there for them. The third and final people I want to address today are people who do not yet believe in Jesus. Maybe you've never given him much thought before this and you've just stumbled across this video and somehow you've just been enthralled by the fact that some guy with a stupid and weird mustache would be on the internet talking about Jesus for so long. But or maybe you've been a Christian in the past and you wouldn't currently say that you believe. What I have to say to you is be open. Don't close yourself off. Don't put yourself in a mindset that if Jesus were to show up in front of you, you wouldn't even believe or care then. And if you are open, I invite you to pray this simple prayer. Just say, Jesus, I am open to believing. Just give me a reason to. Give me a sign that you are who you say you are. Jesus says himself to Thomas in John 20, 29, that blessed are those who believe without seeing. Some of those first century Christians had the opportunity to see and walk with Jesus in the flesh. And there are others throughout history who have had conversion stories that involved amazing and miraculous interventions from God. But there are also those of us whose faith in Jesus is based on things that are measurably more subtle. And Jesus says that these, that there is a special place in his heart for those who come to believe without seeing. So do not feel lacking if you're in that boat, because no matter what led up to your belief, if you have asked Jesus into your life and for the forgiveness of your sins, you have the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead living in you. And you have come face to face with Jesus, just like Thomas just like Paul.
just like so many throughout history. To close, if you're here right now and you've been in that third category of person who weren't believing when you started this video today, but you have been feeling the Holy Spirit speaking to you, maybe you prayed the prayer earlier and you're starting to believe in Jesus now and you want to follow him and ask him into your life, I invite you to pray this prayer by repeating after me. Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross for my sins. I know that I have made mistakes, but you are bigger than my mistakes. Forgive me for what I have done and come into my life. I want to follow you, Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer right now, I want you to know that the angels in heaven are having a party right now because another one of God's beloved children have come home and we are also really excited with you. We believe that following Jesus is something that isn't meant to be done alone. So if you prayed that prayer, let someone know. Message a friend who shared this video and you saw it from or say something in the comments or you can email myself at justin at myapa.ca and I'll follow up with you and talk about some next steps in following Jesus as a part of a community. I'm so glad to have had this opportunity to share this message with you all today. Let's spend some time celebrating what Jesus has done today through worship and song from our friends in Movement Church. God bless.